This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. This morning's scripture passage from Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of generation and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who, to, so to those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works, that these things are excellent and profitable for people. This is God's word. In the book of Titus, we've been going through Titus now, I don't know how many weeks, but we're, uh, we have two more sermons, this one and then one in, in January, and we're trying to get our biblical bearings as a church body. Um, we've covered such topics as the church plant and the church planter. Uh, we've talked about elders and deacons. Uh, last week was the beginning, and this week is, is part two of talking about the congregants, the members of the body, um, those who are uh, essentially all of us here today who call Uh, City Church home. If you'll recall, we spent three weeks talking about elders. We spent a lot of time in and around these two topics. Who are they and what do they do? Last week, we started the conversation about members, continuing it this week, uh, talking about who are we and and what do we do as the local members of the gospel uh, community. Last week, if you'll recall, our focus was internal. Um, Who are we and how do we relate to one another inside the family of faith. And this week, the second week, um, the focus is external. Uh, think about it this way. Who, who are we and, and what do we do? Who are we and how do we interact with and relate to and, and think about the, the external world, um, the members of society around us, those who are not yet part of the community of faith? What is Paul calling Titus, calling the Cretans, calling us to? And we'll cover these eight Verses this way, what, why, and how. In relating to outsiders, in relating um, to those unbelievers we live life with and around, what are we called to, why are we called to it, and how can we do it? What, why, and how. So let's dig in. If you've got your insert, uh, pull it out. I'll be walking through this text basically from verse 1 down through the bottom through this sermon. What are we called to? Verse 1, Paul is going to give us an idea of, what, uh, of how we interact with the governing authorities, the various governing authorities in our lives. And then in verse 2, he's going to walk us through how to relate to everyone in our city in general. Look at verse 1 with me. This is our call towards governing authorities. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. In 1 Timothy, Paul tells believers to be in constant 
prayer for their government leaders. And now in the book of Titus, he adds to prayer these ideas, submission, obedience, and eagerness, a readiness, a preparedness to do rulers and authorities good and to support them in the good that they want to do for the society that we live in. The New Testament teachers from Jesus to Paul to Peter, they all call for a qualified submission to the governing authorities in the lands in which we live, realizing that the state's authority is delegated to them by the sovereignty and the providence of God. And that by God's design, God has put the state in place in order to curtail evil by punishing it and to promote good by rewarding it. And to the extent that the leaders, the governing authorities in our lives, to the extent they do that, the call for us is to submit, to obey, to be prepared, to be ready, to do good, supporting them. And secondly, what are we called to in relation to everyone else, uh, in, certainly inside the body of faith, but, but more specifically outside the body of faith. Look at verse 2. Remind them to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. So speak evil of no one, blaspheme no one, malign no one. Avoid quarreling, be uncontentious, literally abstain from all fighting. So first, negatively, what we're not to do, we're not to be fighters in words and deeds. But secondly, positively, the body of faith is to be this towards outsiders, gentle and courteous. Be gentle. It's a word that that means forbearing. It means conciliatory. It it most naturally means uh, show restraint in how you respond. It, It even means to placate, to pacify. When they strike at you verbally or physically, pacify. Placate, be conciliatory, be gentle. Next, show perfect courtesy or whole, complete, utter, absolute courtesy or humility to all people. Now, now before we go on, I just want to let us think about what the original audience would have heard when Titus told them what St. Paul said. This is what it would have sounded like in their ears. If it sounds a little ridiculous, a little Pollyanna-esque, a little um, um, crazy to us to hear that this is how we relate to those outside of this room who don't yet believe, consider how nuts it would have been to the citizens of Crete. Crete was no Mayberry. It was no Mayfield. You know what Mayfield is, right? It's Beaver Cleaver's hometown. Read all about it yesterday. It was fascinating. I can tell you about it later. This is no celebration uh, until the sad tragedy a few weeks ago. Crete is more like Las Vegas, Detroit, and Harlem put together. In the ancient world, Crete was known for and famous for its moral decadence and its inhumane brutality. In chapter 1, you'll recall from several weeks ago, Paul quoted Epimenides, who was a Cretan philosopher. And this is what Epimenides said. This is Paul in Titus 1 quoting a philosopher from Crete. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes or evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Cretans were world famous for being liars. The Greeks um, coined two terms in their vocabulary that had the name Crete in it. Cretizo means to lie or cheat. It'd be like, don't Orlando me. Don't lie to me. 
They, the word kritismo is the noun for a falsehood. This is how world-famous those on the island of Crete were for deception. In terms of being evil beasts or da- literally dangerous animals, Crete, because it's an island in the Mediterranean Sea and because of topography and temperature, had no large evil beasts uh, or, or dangerous beasts on it, lions and tigers and bears. Thank you for that. And, um, and, and, and evidently, maybe because they're surrounded by water, maybe hunters had had um, gotten rid of all the wild animals. But by the time um, that the Epimenides was writing about his own country, he said the reason that we don't have wild beasts um, may be unknown to us, but we don't need to worry about the lack thereof because uh, the Cretans themselves are the wild beasts of the land. Just vile, vicious people. In regards to being lazy gluttons, Polybius, um, a Greek historian from the second century before Jesus said, it's almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous than in Crete. Cicero, a Roman historian from the first century before Jesus said that this is what the original audience lived in. Moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery honorable. It is in this context that Paul says, be submissive. Don't speak evil of anyone in any way. Don't fight them. Don't strike back. Be gentle and forbearing with them. Show complete and utter courtesy. Paul is teaching what Jesus clearly taught and lived, a love for neighbor an absorbing of evil and sin. If they strike one cheek, turn to them the other also. If they take your coat, give them your shirt. If they demand that you go one mile, grab their pack and walk two. And so the question that has to be coursing through the Cretan's mind and the question that may be on our mind is this, why? If that's the what of how we relate to outsiders, why do we relate to outsiders? And it works out just, just fine for me that the second point of my sermon is why. I think Paul knows that they're going to ask this question, and that's why the very first word of verse 3 is this, for, since, because. Do this, verses 1 and 2 For this reason, 3 through 7. Relate to outsiders this way, verses 1 and 2, because of the following, 3 and 4. Serve under the government, absorb evil, and love your neighbor. Why? Since the following is true. Pick up in verse 3. This is why we're called to what we're called to. In a sentence, in a word, this is the why. Because he saved us. If you look down at the beginning of verse 5, Paul says, he saved us. In a sentence that that most commentators agree, all commentators I read agree, that 4 through 7 is one sentence. Most of them are now arguing that 3 through 7 is one sentence. It's one saying according to verse 8. And while there are multiple verbs that add to the main verb, and while there are multiple verbs that support the main verb, the primary verb of focus in the entire sentence is this. He saved us. Why? Because he saved us. And of course, Paul, 
doesn't just say because he saved us. He, he recapitulates and reviews and proclaims again the gospel of Jesus as the reason why we behave this way in our city. In verses 3 through 7, he's going to tell us, look at who we were when God saved us. Look at who God is in saving us. Look at why God saved us. And look at how God saved us, is saving us, and will save us. These are the answers to why. Look at me at verse 3. Look at the unsavory picture of who we were when God saved us. For, since, because, we ourselves, Paul, Titus, you and me, we were once foolish and disobedient. We were mentally and morally depraved. We were led astray or we were deceived. We were slaves to or enslaved to various, many colorful passions and pleasures. But both of these are are in a passive form. They're done to us. Paul is alluding to Satan. He's alluding to the evil one. The Bible says that Satan is a deceiver who has the power to blind people's minds, 2 Corinthians 4. And that Satan is a tyrant who is able to take captive anyone that God allows him to take captive, 2 Timothy 2, 26. The Bible teaches that while we are utterly responsible for our folly and our disobedience, first part of the verse, we are at the same time victims. We're not only foolish, we're deceived. And we're not only disobedient, but we're enslaved. Paul keeps going. This is why, because... We were passing our days in malice and envy. Malice is the wishing of evil on someone else. Envy is resenting them for having anything good. Keep going. We were hated by others and we were hating one another. The word for hate can mean what we normally think of, to despise, but it can also mean something a lot less shocking. It can simply mean to be indifferent. Hate is the opposite of love in the Bible. Hatred is not just rip your head off, uh, spit down your throat, uh, punch you, kind of feeling and emotion. It's, it's just simply the opposite of love. Love is this. It's a decision and an action to decrease so that someone else can increase. Love is saying no to ourselves so that we can advance and say yes to someone else. Love is saying, I won't spend my resources on me. I'll spend my resources on you. Greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. So if that's love, hate is simply the opposite. It's advancing ourselves at the expense of another. It's seeing ourselves as supreme and most valuable and being willing to use others or simply ignore others so that we can advance ourselves. Why are we called to verses one and two? Because God saved us when this is who we were. Keep going. Look at who God is in saving us. But, so that's who we were, verse three. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Verse six is going to say that Jesus Christ is this savior that appeared, that epiphany, that advented the first time. You can say Jesus appeared, or you can simply say what is true about Jesus, that goodness appeared, loving kindness appeared, that that when we were and when we 
are disobedient, he was and is good. That when we were and when we are full of hate, he was and is loving kindness. That when we deserve to be destroyed and devoured by Satan, he was merciful, not giving us what we deserved. And when we earned absolutely nothing from him, he makes us his children and he is rich in grace, verses 6 and 7, giving us what we don't deserve. Why? Because he saved us. Keep going. Look at why God saved us. Verse 5. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. We didn't earn it. We can't earn it. It's not because of our good works. It's not because we've done anything righteous or moral or good or right. But it's very blunt. It's according to his mercy. We're saved by God's choice. We're saved by God's promise. We're saved by God's initiative. And then again, just like last week in chapter 2, this week in chapter 3, Paul says, look at how God saved us, how he is saving us, and how he will save us. God saved us, or he delivered us from the penalty of sin. Verse 7, believers have been justified by his grace. This is a term that Paul uh, uh, borrows from the legal system of Rome. It means to be declared righteous. What is true of us and who we are is verse 3. What is true of us at the end of the gospel is verse 7, that we were this, but now we're declared righteous. At the end of the trial, at the end of all the witnesses speaking, at the end of the attorneys arguing the case, the judge makes a decision. He can say either condemned or he can say justified. He can either say guilty or he can say righteous. And Paul says that God is the end says to us, righteous, saved from the penalty of sin by grace because Jesus gives us his righteousness when he dies for our sins and takes on our guilt at the cross. Past tense, we're saved and delivered from the penalty of sin. But not only that, God is saving us. He is delivering us, present tense, from the power of sin by the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives. Look at the end of verse 5. In the gospel of Jesus, God doesn't simply declare us righteous and leave us in the perpetual enslaved state of verse 3, but he saves us from the power of sin. He regenerates us. He gives us new birth. He, um, he gives us uh, literally, it's, it's two words shoved together. It's Genesis again. He gives us again Genesis. He, he puts at the core of who we are a new man and a new self as if we go all the way back to the beginning before sin entered the world and was part of the picture. He regenerates us. But at the same time, God doesn't completely eradicate from us right now um, the old self. The old man is still in our extremities. And so God is good and gracious and kind. And we looked at this a lot last week that he is right now, present tense, renewing us. Verse 5, the Holy Spirit is transforming us and renewing us and delivering us from the present power of sin. This is why we do verses 1 and 2. But finally, God's going to save us. He's going to deliver us. He's going to redeem us. It's part and parcel of the gospel. In the future, we will be utterly free from the presence of sin and death in our hearts, in our relationships, in our world. Look at verse 7. We have been justified by grace so that we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
The Bible says that if your faith is in Jesus, you're an heir of God the Father. You're a co-heir with your brother, Jesus Christ, that because of Jesus' work, we're beloved children of God. We're, We're beloved siblings of Jesus. We have a future hope of an unclouded fellowship with the Father, with ourselves, with one another, and with the world. That is going to happen for us. And that is why we forgive and we forbear, and we absorb evil, and we submit, and we don't strike back. If I lost you at any point during the unpacking of these verses about our salvation, come back to me now. This is, this is the part that you have to see, that we're called to relate to outsiders, the outside world, in a forbearing forgiving, placating, sin-absorbing sort of way because he saved us. In the end, we relate to outsiders in a pay-it-forward paradigm. You've seen this movie, maybe, if you haven't, it's a great one to see. It's from the year 2000. It's the movie called Pay It Forward. It has Kevin Spacey and Helen Hunt and uh, Haley Joel Osment in it. And uh, the storyline is essentially this. Trevor McKinney is, is a 12-year-old, and he's in a social studies class. And the teacher gives the following assignment. Come up with a plan that will change the world through direct action. And this is Trevor's idea. It comes across him as he walks home. He decides that he's going to, to start a movement called Pay It Forward. That if he could do something kind and redemptive and hopeful and gracious in three people's lives, and if he could encourage them when they want to pay him back, if he could encourage them to instead pay it forward to three others who would pay it forward to three more, he could create this charitable pyramid scheme, if you will, where, where grace and mercy and love and kindness and redemption moves forward all because it started with him. This is the way obedience works in the gospel. All the other religions of our world tell us, if you obey, God will love you. Christianity and the gospel and the Bible teaches, God loves us and therefore we obey. That we pay it forward. I I don't know if you saw this. I don't know if I'm going to be in trouble. Some of you are going to be mad that I was watching the NBC Nightly News. I remember once as a young preacher... um, I talked about listening to NPR, and I lost like three people in this con- congregation because it wasn't Fox News. Um, stay with me. It was online. Okay, I wasn't actually watching it. NBC. I would never do something so foolish and stupid as that. Um, but they have uh, this segment called uh, Making a Difference, and I thought it was a fantastic illustration of the pay-it-forward principle of why we do what we do in the gospel. If you didn't see it, I think you could go to msnbc.com if you're... If you're um, the parental controls on your machine will let you go to such a place. And um, uh, Lauren Kruger recently passed away at the ripe old age of 94. Lauren uh, was a retired farmer. He lived al- alone in Leroy, Minnesota. Um, he only had one son in his life. Tragically, the son died of cancer as a teenager. Not long after that, he buried his first wife, uh, eventually fell in love again, uh, married, and, and had the misfortune of having to bury that wife um, as well. His friends at the Senior uh, Citizen Center knew him as very frugal. They, they sort of laughed about him. He was usually unwilling to part with a quarter to get a cup of hot coffee or, or a simple uh, cookie. That 
frugal. Several months after uh, his death, his friends at the Senior Citizen Center received multiple checks from his estate, uh, totaling $220,000. Now, if you've been to a small town like Leroy, Minnesota, you know that that right there is a large sum of money. Up till that point, the the center had lived and operated off of $600 a year given to them uh, by their county. Uh, So um, uh, the senior center, though, was not alone in receiving uh, checks uh, after Leroy's death. Um, The fire department and the ambulance service both received $220,000 checks as well. Uh, Leroy was was a religious man. He went to St. Patrick's Catholic Church, and upon his death, they received a million dollars. But St. Patrick's was not alone. Uh, Leroy was an ecumenical man, and so he gave First Presbyterian of Leroy, Bethany Baptist of Leroy, and Lutheran Church $400,000 each. All told, uh, a little more than $3 million. But to illustrate our point Today, that's the first half of the gospel. Right when you thought the peace was about to come to an end, the reporter said this, but to suggest the giving ended with a $3 million flurry is to show that you have a little more to learn about Leroy. The churches knew that the town's assisted living center needed a new commercial kitchen, so they banded together and decided to share some of their money so that one could be built. The senior, uh, senior center noticed that the county school needed a new playground, so they had one installed for them. The seniors worked with the Lutherans to build an indoor community pool. And lastly, the seniors wrote a check to Grace Christian Church, the only church to be planted after Leroy made his will, not wanting anyone to be left out. This is what an older man from the Senior Citizen Center said. This is a quote. He's from Minnesota. Keep that in mind. It makes you feel good. Why not give it away? It was given to us. We didn't have it before. Why not help other people in need too? This is Christianity. This is the why in how we relate to those outside of us in hopes that they will come in and be a part of us. We love because he loved us when we were and are so unlovely. We forgive because he forgave and forgives us. We speak with grace and acceptance and love because his first words to us in the gospel were grace, acceptance, and love. We love our enemies because he loved us and he loved us when we were his enemies and he loves us now when we act like we are his enemies. So that's the what, verses 1 and 2, and the why, verses 3 through 7. Let's consider quickly the how, verse 8. The how. You, you, you could sort of say to me that all looks good on a theoretical level. That all looks good on a piece of paper. I can understand the logic of that. In fact, Paul in Romans 12 says this. He says, in light of these mercies of God, uh, summarizing the first 11 chapters of the book, he says, in light of that, give your life as a living sacrifice. Live your life as if you're a dead person on your way to death so that other people can live. And then he just says, this is your reasonable service on paper It absolutely makes sense, but in my life, it is incredibly hard. So how can we 
do it. Of course, the big picture answer, like last week from all my Presbyterian friends, is God is renewing us. We're going to do it. But how do we actually experience it? Looking at it from another level on another plane, the work of God in us, how do we actually increase in this kind of love? Paul answers that question in verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Okay, so multiple places in Paul's letter, he says this, um, this saying is trustworthy. He has this phrase he likes to say in lots of his letters. And the question always is, was he talking about what came before it or what comes after it? Is it a summary statement or an introductory statement? All the commentators I read agree that Paul is talking about what he has already said. He is already talking about this comprehensive, incredible summary of the gospel, of our salvation, what we have in Jesus all that it entails. He is, saying, he is saying, what I just told you, that saying is faithful and trustworthy. You can take it to the bank, and I want you to insist on these things, plural. He's talking about all the aspects and the ingredients of our salvation. He's telling Titus, I want you to insist that all of this is absolutely true. Give it special emphasis. Speak confidently about these things. Of all the things Titus teaches, he's supposed to give the most emphasis to the various and wonderful truths about the gospel of our salvation. And this is the reason. So that, in order that, those who have believed in God or those who have faith in God's grace and love may be, may be able, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Review. Are we saved by works? Absolutely not. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. But if we're truly saved by God, and if we're truly being saved by God, then we will increasingly be free from the power of sin and the selfishness of sin, and we will increasingly devote ourselves and concentrate on serving and loving and giving life to people around us, most importantly, those outside the body, because we have found so much life in Jesus. Now, let's, let's think about this. Let's, let's kind of unpack this. Is, this is less than exciting. I'm going to hand you that. But I want to tangibly talk about how do we increasingly obey? How can we increase in love and forgiveness? And, and, and how can we increase in the performance of these good works? First, very practically, we have to increasingly get around men and women who will insist on the totality of the gospel being true. Paul says here to Titus that the people he teach, their ability to obey and love and do good works is partially tied to his ability to insist that this doctrine is true. I can't understand all of it. I cannot explain all of it. But part of how Holy Ghost changes us is we just sit under the glorious doctrines of grace. And we rest and we receive and we believe. He says, insist so that they may be careful to devote themselves to good works. First, we have to be around gospel pace setters. We have to increasingly pray for me, for those of you who are regular here, that God would enable me and empower me to increasingly insist that what we have in Jesus is true. It has an effect on the person sitting in the cubicle next to you. It's that important. But second, we have to increasingly believe. Look at what he says. 
It's not only those, um, it is only those who believe the gospel, excuse me, who believe in God. It is only those who are able to devote themselves to good, to good works. I mean, this can be teased out so many ways, but I'll just mention what I think is the most obvious. If we don't have life and satisfaction and joy in Jesus, we'll never stop using or hating other people in our endless pursuit of life. But by believing in God and his love and believing in his power and his promises for gracious gospel change, we are free to move out in sacrificial and servant-hearted ways. We have to increase in being around gospel pace-setters. We have to increase in our belief. And then third, we have to increasingly devote ourselves in advance to good works. There's a proactivity here that I want us to see. Look at verse 1. Remind them to be ready, to be prepared for every good work. Look down at verse 8. We are carefully, it's a word that means concentrate. We're to concentrate on devoting ourselves to good works. Why? Because it's so foreign to me. What is my reaction when you strike me? (laughs) Strike back. What is my reaction? What, what am I going to naturally want to do in the flesh when I see someone? I'm going to want to either use them or ignore them. What am I, what's my inclination to the world outside of me? Not service, not sacrifice. But Paul is saying we have to in advance because it is so foreign to us. We have to get ourselves ready for this kind of work. We must be around people who believe the gospel and insist on it being true. We must increasingly believe that God has forgiven us, that he loves us, that he accepts us, that he promises to change us. And we must be planning out, looking into the future, daydreaming about ways to die so that others might live because of what we have in Jesus. Let's pray. Most gracious God and Heavenly Father, I come to you as a man who can only talk about this in theory in so many ways, but I have to confess that you have put a desire in me to live this kind of life, that there would be deep joy and satisfaction and rest in meeting with you if I could be so free from the love of self in order to love others sacrificially, including my enemies. I pray that you would work in this body, that we would insist on the gospel being true to one another, that we might be freed up from the love of self so that we can begin to daydream and plan and build a process for how we will be this kind of salt and light in this city. There's so much work to be done in this city. There's great things already happening here. We thank you for that, but there's more to be done. We pray that you would continue to establish this church, plant this church, organize this church in a biblical fashion for you to be glorified, for your people to to experience your mission, and, and for this city to know your blessing. In your name we pray, amen.